The following program is produced by the Align in the Sound team. If you like what you hear, please stick around at the end of the show to find out more, contact us, and contribute towards a positive future. You are listening to Zena Richardson and Scotty Foster, your hosts this morning with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM in Canberra. Well, if there's one thing that we've going to remember many years from now after COVID is that we spent an awful lot of time at home and that home came to mean a lot more to us than we'd taken for granted. It also brought to light very quickly what is and isn't working where we live, what we want and need to change and for many on the raw end of the economic collapse how quickly shelter can become precarious even out of reach and if things keep going the way they're going it'll just get worse so change has to happen. To help us envision and create affordable and sustainable community housing initiatives, we have three inspiring guests joining us today. On the phone, we have Mark Spain, who is on the board of directors for Sun Village's Smart Housing Project in Queenbian. And also joining us on the phone, we have Fiona Gain, who is the president of Co-Housing Canberra. And with us in studio, we have Julie Estelle, who's the founder of the social enterprise startup Live Simply Tiny House Communities. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. So I guess we should start in um, maybe talking a little bit about uh, what it is that you're doing and who you are and your organisation. Is there anyone that would like to volunteer to go first? Silence. (laughs) No, Jules, you go first. You've got a great great, uh, voice. (laughs) Okay, Fee. Um, Thank you. Uh, Right. I, I you know, have first-hand um, experience in the need for affordable housing and also of living in community and the benefits of community. So it's kind of, in a sense, I suppose, natural that I progressed to um, being somebody that looked for opportunities to create community as a way of alleviating the current housing crisis. Um, because it's not just a housing crisis, it's a social integration crisis. Um, there's, there's a lot to it. And for me, tiny houses became the avenue because, well, we had a tiny house stolen a couple of years ago and it kind of made big news around the world even. And as a result, lots of people connected with me and I found, yeah, I really saw firsthand the need that existed, um, particularly um, with women my age. Um, it's a it's a really growing demographic of people who are needing housing, uh, you know, preferring not to share, preferring to actually have their own space. So, uh, yeah, so I started looking at ways to create these kind of communities. And um, Live Simply, um, what is Live Simply actually? You said it's a social enterprise startup. So, is there a community happening already, or is it? There isn't a community happening already, yeah. no, unfortunately. This is a long and slow process, mm-hmm. as I'm sure both Mark and Fiona mm-hmm. are finding. Uh, <laughs> no, I think I founded this about two years ago and um, am, you know, have, over that time frame, done numerous feasibility studies of blocks of land that I could potentially develop, but everything thus far has had um, some significant factor that's made that not feasible. Um, not feasible from a generally financial perspective. There's been some aspect that's just going to cost too much to, to make it worth progressing. Um, and so um, 
the, the reason for Live Simply um, being the name is, is because I'm looking at sustainable tiny house communities, not just, you know, quickly whacked up um, communities that, um, yeah, don't don't take into account our our social needs, our financial needs, and our economic, yeah, sorry, our environmental impact. And so, many people are realizing, you know, are, are very aware of their need to live more simply, to have a smaller footprint, to, um, yeah. To, mm -hmm. to have a simpler life. Yeah, lovely. And I'd love to, as we get into the show, um, you tell us a bit more about tiny homes. For the, A lot of people are very curious about them, but maybe don't quite know what that entails, and they've got visions of caravans. But I know there's a lot more to a tiny home than that. Yeah, there sure is. Great. So yeah. um, Fiona or Mark, who would like to chat with us next about uh, what you're involved in? Uh, I'm, I'm happy to, to leap okay. in. Uh, so I'm interested in co-housing as part of the sort of broader collaborative housing movement, which is sort of slowly gaining ground in Australia. So collaborative housing is an umbrella term that incorporates cooperative, um, collaborative retirement options for older people looking at sharing space after retirement, in retirement, um, building groups, so where residents come together to propose a certain sort of building and living together. Um, Co-housing is, is another aspect of that, um, which is also a resident-led design um, process where people share, share space and, and social interaction. And there's, um, there's other examples in Australia where people have just taken small blocks or, you know, adjacent blocks um, and just done very sort of small, small developments on that, on those sorts of blocks um, where, where zoning allows for that. And um, sometimes people also think of intentional communities, which is a term that typically um, is associated with more rural collaborative housing models, um, typically on larger blocks and eco-villages. So um, recently in Australia, there's been a few kind of, I guess, or there's been more sort of, I guess, academics looking at looking at the collaborative housing scene and uh, UTS, the University of Technology in Sydney, um, has got a, a sort of dedicated website um, on collaborative housing, which is a really great sort of starting point for anyone who's interested in the collaborative housing space. Mm. So, so co-housing is a little bit more of a new concept in Australia, but I understand it's quite established in uh, it Scandinavia and Denmark where it came from. So it's uh, maybe um, there's quite a lot of uh, co-housing communities in Europe and the US and we're sort of a little bit lagging behind, but um, starting to follow suit. Yeah, what's funny is that in Denmark, it's actually a conventional planning structure for, um, for planning, I think, something like 30% of residential neighbourhoods in Denmark are designed around a sort of central, um, a central kind of area that residents kind of face into, and and there's sort of um, restrictions on cars, so that you have these very sort of uh, playful, friendly kind of uh, shared spaces where you know children can kind of play, and neighbours' balconies all kind of look out onto children playing, and that's just the sort of standard model, not just for Denmark, but mm. um, you know Scandinavia, all through Scandinavia, this co-housing. Um, design principle is is kind of standard. It's kind of assumed that that that's what you would want. Um, it, it's really um, happened in Australia only recently, and more so, 
um, well, I'm talking about co-housing here, of course, some of the rural um, rural allotments, you know, were happening well and truly, you know, through the 70s. But in terms of the urban space, um, it's really taken off in Australia with some once, once sort of, I guess, commercial um, architects were able to see the need and see that there was a genuine demand for this kind of a product in cities. And the most famous example is in Melbourne, the Nightingale Architect Group, I think, are onto their fifth or sixth apartment building, which has got some shared facilities and, um, you know, shared rooftop garden and um, very high standard of ecological um, housing. So I think Nightingale are, are interested in expanding outside Melbourne. It's just that's where there's you know, started up and, and got, gotten going. Mm, yeah, we're going to talk a, a bit in the show about the barriers to getting a lot of these um, projects off the ground because I think it's not the intention that lacks, it's the, um, the red, tape, <coughs> red tape and the paperwork and people who don't really understand the concept um, resisting change. So uh, we're looking forward to brainstorming some of the solutions to that. Uh, so thanks, Fiona. So, um, Mark, Sun Villages, tell us about Sun Villages. Yeah, well, it's, uh, thanks, Tina. It's lovely to hear uh, Fiona and Jules' story too. But when I was thinking about it, I, I just thought that human history's always had the need for shelter. And usually when we um, stopped being nomadic uh, and we started to grow food in one place, we had a more permanent shelter. And even though we might live in families, uh, units or small groups, building a house actually required a whole community. Uh, to do that. So we collaborated with each other to build these assets that were available for uh, the whole community as well as that um, that family unit or what have you. So, uh, you know, what Fiona was saying there about um, the Scandinavian countries, I know when I visited Denmark, you know, there'd be sort of six-storey high uh, apartments but, and they'd all circle around, as Fiona said, in a block of land with streets on the outside with an internal space that had beautiful trees and gardens and uh, playgrounds for kids, spots for your bike, you know, you could have a barbecue. So all those sort of uh, functions of living where you um, enjoy interacting with other people and especially, uh, in fact, a lot of the co-housing in uh, Europe has great big dining halls and, um, you know, each day uh, people collaborate to cook the food and also to share it together. And, of course, um, those of us who really love being with people just really value that interaction. And those of us who are a bit more, um, uh, you know, quiet or reserved might like to have more private space. So there's no obligation for you to be in community uh, and you can choose the level of interaction you want to have with others so it's not uh, a forced community. And usually when we live in community, we actually get into... um, interpersonal conflicts with each other and some of us um, you know are quite loud and boisterous about dealing with conflicts and others are quite intimidated and overwhelmed by personalities who are you know strong-minded so we do need to have our private spaces in whatever way we're living but a lot of the, a lot of the things that we uh, have in our lives could easily be shared like I'm, I'm living in a house in a suburb in Canberra but if I look in my garage I've got all this I've got tools, lawnmowers, equipment, cars, you know, all this stuff that really doesn't get used a lot of the time. And if I was able to share some of that with my neighbours, first of all, we'd have a lower ecological footprint on the planet and we'd probably have a lot uh, warmer interactions with each other, Um, you know, helping each other out with gardening and things like that. 
So the idea, I think, behind a lot of co-housing is to is to reduce the burden and to minimise the costs, uh, not only to yourself but to to the community around how we uh, how we live together. And um, the the idea of some villages is is to have village life in the city. So um, the idea there is to rather than you own your own um, apartment. You own a share in the whole enterprise and you can have investors um, who don't live there investing in it as well because they're committed to the philosophy of it and the people who live there don't necessarily need to have a lot of money. Like the minimum amount is just $10,000 and uh, and yet there's some... Uh, the social spaces designed into the village life in the city is designed so that they're optimised. If you go to most apartment blocks in our cities, the, the unused spaces are sort of dead spaces that have to be, uh, you know, heated and lit and cleaned, and and they're not optimised for social interaction because we've we're living in a culture and an economy that uh, forces us to be individualistic. You know, all of us have to buy our own internet connection. We have to buy our own electricity to buy our own sewerage, uh, whereas if we start to share how we deliver all these uh, common uh, services and resources to each other, we can actually minimise the cost and optimise the quality of life in how we work together. So, look, I could go into it a bit more, but that's sort of the basic idea behind some villages, and we're still really doing a lot of innovative work in developing the governance structure for how to do this. So we're looking at being a cooperative rather than a corporation that's just owned by a small group of people who make all the money and everybody else feeds the money in. That's the, the typical system that we've got in our current economy where the banks and the developers make all the money and the people just keep on feeding the money in uh, and we don't question that system. And what we're trying to do is, is uh, develop a new way of getting the community to maximise their own assets without giving all this money away to banks and developers and they can uh, work on their own cost-effective housing for themselves. Mm, it's great, Mark. Um, is it possible, um, I'm not quite sure where you've got your mic positioned or your phone positioned, are you able to get a little closer to your mic? Uh, we just heard that there's a little bit of trouble hearing you there. Okay, well, I've, I'm just wearing my uh, phone ear, ear pads and I've got my Mike, just hear that any better? Okay, it's good for me. It sounds like, yeah, yeah we've just yeah. got the thumbs up there, so that's fantastic. Thank you so much. And, you know, you call, call uh, Sun Villages smart housing. How is smart housing different to standard housing? Well, I think I just sort of explained a little bit of it there. The smartness, first of all, comes from um, not leaving it up to each individual to solve all the problems by themselves. Because of, of, most of us actually spend most of our lives in debt just to cover our, our housing. And um, you know, smart housing is about optimising the way we can collaborate with each other uh, to minimise the costs that are involved in establishing just comfortable, uh, you know, thriving living together. Uh, so the smartness comes in in how to collaborate with each other to minimise those costs. 
And as you mentioned too, there's a lot of unused common space, uh, which you're also paying body corporate fees to have maintained and, you know, cleaned and heated, as you said. So there's um, a lot of potential alternative use for that common space. uh, And that I think people maybe are not used to thinking about sharing so much common space with their neighbours. So um, what does that look like for people who are thinking of becoming part of a community like Sun Villages? Like how much of that common space is going to be shared? And, and as you mentioned, some people might prefer to have a bit more privacy. So are they going to have alternatives? So if there's a, like a common kitchen space where they might do communal meals, I'm assuming everybody's also going to have their own kitchen in their own unit if they prefer to not participate in the communal meal that week. Yeah, that's exactly right, Dina. So um, if you look at... Well, let's start with what the private space we need. You know, um, we need a bedroom. You know, most of us like to choose who we sleep with. So so that needs to be a private space that's comfortable and we can always go to that. Our own study, uh, as you said, you need to be able to cook and prepare your own meals yourself. So it may only be a small kitchen, Um but uh, the way Sun Villages is going to is uh, designed is that you can expand and contract. Uh, like if you started off as a single person, you could just have a small apartment. But uh, as you, if you got into a relationship and had children, you could you could stay in the same apartment and expand into rooms next door in the in the overall design of the apartment because it's designed in a way to have some spaces let out to executive suites. So this is designed especially for city living and being close to, well, you know, before COVID, close to airports when there was a lot of travelling. So you could use some of the uh, executive apartments uh, to be able to be expanded into from a, a family expanding or contracting. But uh, the sort of co- the easiest sort of common spaces is is, uh, is a communal um, dining area. That's a shared space, and people, uh, you know, would share how they collaborate in that space. And it would also be a place where you could have uh, a games room or, you know, a play area for kids or also, um, uh, read, you know, a library or a reading area. And even playing music, you know, people like a lot of artistic expression can happen in, um, uh, in shared spaces as well. And, and the, the extra challenge that you get in creating uh, a more intentional community like that is you need to you know, have the interpersonal skills to be able to work collaboratively with others as, uh, you know, on projects that you uh, all value together collectively, but you also need to not have to be obliged to do that all the time. So you can also retreat back to your private space. Mm-hmm. So things like laundries, uh, transport, um, you know, maintenance of the building, these are all sort of shared responsibilities and there's, there's ways to make those assets that you've got in your house uh, available for everybody to use and to govern how they're used in a way that, that has everybody satisfied. Mm. So it sounds like you're also um, reducing the need for people to move so frequently. So, you know, the average first-time buyer, I think, if they're starting a family, often moves within the first three to five years. Um, That's right. As they're expanding, yeah. so you're creating longevity, like a long-term solution, which will then foster building community, long-term community. Yeah, and if you've got really well-established relationships with um, people of older than you and younger than you in a local community, and you're also doing, you know, some of us are really interested in gardening or mm-hmm. growing food, and you've been a part of all of that, or even creating art or doing music together or dance or yoga, 
because a lot of uh, co-housing projects, uh, you know, have communal activities on a regular basis inside that community that welcome others in as well. So rather than when you get into a relationship and have kids uh, and you have to move out to somewhere else, you can stay there mm. and and your family can be, uh, you know, maintained as part of the relationships that you've already got. Yeah, that's great. So we're creating villages. So um, Scotty's got a question he'd like to interject yeah, here. Yeah, I guess you've, you've sort of outlined a, a concept of home there. And, and what uh, I'd just like to ask, uh, yeah, Jules or Fiona, what, what's the sort of concept of home that you might have in mind for, for your sort of things, you know? Home for oh, just as a our, home for you, our, for ourselves the, or yeah. for you know the okay. Um, <laughs> what does a tiny house home look like? Okay, yeah. right. Tiny house home definitely looks different to my current home because <laughs> I have three teenage boys and a couple of cats and a dog living at my home. Right, you'd need as a well lot of the husbands then to put yeah. them all in. <laughs> yeah, so tiny home isn't quite suitable for a family of my size, but um, tiny home. Is certainly a place that a single, a couple, a couple with young kids can find completely adequate space, facilities um, and comfort in. Um, but because they're small, like with Sun Villages and other co-housing um, styles, having shared communal spaces really works because um, you don't have a big dining room to invite people around to. So having a shared dining room or a shared yoga room or craft studio or workshop gives places for um, interaction with others. So people who are not too familiar with tiny homes are trying to probably imagine when you say tiny, you know, how, how tiny are we talking? I mean, there is a bit of a range and I know it depends on whether you're building on a trailer or you're building on foundations. We've got footings and it's a permanent structure. Um, what, uh, what, what sort of size are we talking about? Because people say, okay, we're not big enough for a family. Well, I know some families have managed to make tiny home living work quite well. True. Yeah. True. They have. Um, the tiny house that I built a few years ago is really a backyard bedroom. It has a bathroom, it has a little kitchenette. It's just over 10 square metres. Um, it, that really would be hard for a family. But some people are building them uh, eight, nine metres long, even longer in cases in, in the US, they can be quite large. Um, and they can have a couple of bedrooms, um, they can have you know, quite distinct living spaces within them and they're built to be incredibly uh, functional to use their space in extremely well so that uh, you still have most of the facilities that you're needing um, and so yes you can fit you're moving a strenuous space so that anything that's not that's necessary right. isn't there anymore right? that's right Yes, and it, not just extraneous space, but extraneous things. Um, we do find when you downsize to a tiny house that you do have to get rid of a lot of possessions and you have to start thinking really carefully about the possessions you have and how you use them and you know, their multifunctionality, I guess. Um, yeah, spaces become multifunctional. Items become multifunctional. Desks can be used for so many things. And housework was reduced to about 10 minutes, I've heard. <laughs> Yes. Um, yes, I think, I mean, obviously that will vary on the, the house and the nature of the occupants and, and the age of the occupants too, but 
certainly huge reduction in housework. So when we're talking size, I know if you're putting a tiny house on footings, there is minimum size requirements um, in most cities and, and uh, local council areas that say, okay, if that's the only dwelling on the block, it has to be a certain size. It can't be smaller than, or if there's a secondary dwelling, it's got to be no more or no greater than a percentage of the primary dwelling. It varies hugely across mm -hmm. Australia. So, for example, in Canberra at the moment, we have a, a minimum 40 square metres for a secondary dwelling. That's not, not exactly a um, absolute minimum. If you can argue for you know, the use of a laundry inside the house, then you can say we don't need that space in this small area. Um, the new co-housing, or the, the proposed draft variation for um, co-housing and boarding houses that I'm sure Fiona will be talking about, um, actually doesn't stipulate a minimum size for dwellings and therefore I think tiny houses could fit very adequately into that type of arrangement. You could have a number of tiny houses with a, a communal area as a co-housing um, community within Canberra if this variation is um, passed, you know, whatever the word is, whatever they do at... Legislative. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, you know, there's that potential for either tiny homes on wheels or on footings to be of a small size within the Canberra, um, within Canberra. Now, around New South Wales, down in Yorubadala, there's no minimum size requirement. You can put a tiny house on footings, 20 square metres on a property and call it your prim primary dwelling. Is that um, the same for whether or not, whether you're in a town or you're on a rural block? Is that the same? Um, I standard. It, no, it may vary within some towns. Different mm -hmm. towns have different um, what they call development control plans, and even certain areas in certain towns will have other controls on them. So uh, there's no sort of broad brush approach. That it's very much specific to uh, individual councils and even towns within councils. Mm. Yeah. So the tiny home um, that you're talking about, as you said, it it's, could be as small as 20 square meters or it could be a lot larger. Yes. And I know yes. people imagining when they see the tiny home shows with a tiny home on a trailer bed that's built on wheels, that there's a loft bedroom, that there's a, almost like a ladder, you've got to get up to it. And people are thinking, as you said, the demographic is now um, middle-aged to older single women who are struggling with um, potential homelessness issues and looking at tiny homes as a solution. They're thinking, well, I can't be going up and down the ladder when my bladder <laughs> wakes me up at three in the morning. Uh, I don't want to do that, fall down the ladder. So I, I see that there's, there's a lot of ingenious um, design ideas happening within tiny home construction now to do um, main floor bedrooms and bathrooms and also incorporate um, the needs of someone who's less mobile. Absolutely. And, that, and it's still possible within that space to create something very viable. Oh, it is, absolutely. Mm. And I've seen um, people, one woman in particular mm. I've followed on, mm -hmm. um, on Instagram who mm. has created... Um, how do you call it? You know, beds that raise and lower. Mm, just using beds. Yeah. yeah. Well, just using garage door oh, okay. openers. She's just employed you know, mm. garage door openers as a means of yeah. raising and lowering a bed very effectively mm -hmm. and very cheaply. Yeah. Um, so, yes, absolutely, there are some really innovative mm. uh, options for making spaces really usable for older people because that's you're right. That's mm -hmm. a, a big concern for a lot of um, mm. older people. Mm. Even. 
I mean, I've climbed ladders all my life, but these days my knees are... Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't really like to think in you know, 10 years that I'd need to be climbing a ladder. Or to, that you need to leave your tiny house because it's not functioning right. anymore. Yes, yes. So mm-hmm. it is quite possible to design a tiny house and particularly a tiny house mm-hmm. on footings because they can mm-hmm. be larger mm-hmm. um, to to accommodate mm-hmm. the needs of people mm-hmm. who don't have the same ability as... Yeah. Yeah. And I love this idea of tiny houses being incorporated into, into the co-housing, Fiona, that, that this vision of all different types of housing to create different types of homes. So what does, what does home look like in, a, in, a, in the typical co-housing complex? What, what's the experience of home there? Um, it's pretty varied. There's one um, big emphasis in, in all co-housing communities is on where I think the processes are very important to people, so people feel safe um, within within processes. So people should have a, a voice, and they should be very kind of equal and um, very basically consensus based processes um, and and clear understandings around um, you know who's responsible for what, so that you can um, avoid conflict, which is um, you know it's part of life. Conflict is a part of life, but co-housing communities have kind of specialised in trying to, to do that well. So there's been some really, really great um, group process type um, learning that's come out of the co-housing communities that, that I've uh, studied and been, you know, fascinated by for years. So I guess in terms of what home looks like, it, sh- it should feel like a safe space. And, and the other important thing is, I suppose, a shared vision. You'll have um, certain people who, um, you know, join a community and just find it's not the right fit for them. And it's really important that um, the people within a community have some sort of some sort of idea of, of what their values and vision vision are so that, you know, people are free to kind of um, decide or feel um, feel, feel that, that that's something they, you know, they want to kind of come into to knowingly. So I guess that I'm coming back to that kind of idea of safety, I suppose, where it's, um, um, there's, you know, sort of fairly clear expectations and, and um, fairly, fairly, you know, excellent sort of communication processes. Um, I mean, I have talked about the, the sort of the human element and in terms of the physical built environment, um, co-housing tends to look like uh, tends to be kind of grouped townhouses, clusters of townhouses. It tends to have you know shared garden, um, the, the sort of um, emphasis on minimal, you know, minimal environmental impact is is a common thread throughout pretty much every co-housing project around the world. And you know the the sort of really impressive um, things that I like when I look at co-housing communities are you know, a really, really well-functioning garden shed. Like, for me, gardening is a passion. And so, uh, you know, a really well-functioning gardening shed is something that, that is nice to see in a co-housing community where, you know, tools are kind of shared well and maintained and, you know, um, and that's just, yeah, one of these benefits of, of sharing and learning to share is that um, not every person needs to own their own, you know, fork, shovel and, and everything else. It's, it's, it's learning, to, learning to live together well and learning to share together well. Mm. And it also, um, my understanding is that you can create your own groups within the co-housing community f- based on people's interests. So you could have your gardening group who's maybe really into composting. You could have your building maintenance group. You could have your people who love to cook. And, and people could be in more than one group, of course. But it sounds like that you could really yeah. allow people's um, unique interests to help them build, um, you know, strong 
uh, portions of community within Absolutely. that. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, that's, and every co-housing group is unique in the sense that it's been created by a group of people who have discovered enough common interest to, you know, go forward with this as a sort of, you know, long-term commitment. And some co-housing groups have a real emphasis on craft. I, I know of one group um, north of Sydney and they have the most amazing craft space and I'm quite jealous they have this sort of... Um, they converted an old glass house to... Um, Excuse me. An old glass house to be sort of a craft a craft room. So when it's you know wintry and cold, they have this very warm kind of conservatory to do their craft in. And in my vision of a Canberra co-housing um, development, it would just be so nice to have um, to be able to pull resources to build buildings that are you know warm and um, you know make sense from a solar passive perspective. And you know places on a winter's day where you would love to be doing your you know your craft or your your workshopping. You know your your kind of yeah. Some some co-housing groups are really into making things, so they have shared workshops. Mm. Um, as their emphasis and some are really into reading so they have really good shared libraries some are into yoga so they'll have a really great shared yoga space just going to depend on what the makeup of the group is yeah i think scotty's going to jump in here with some yeah, questions for yeah, you yeah, look i reckon you're describing what george monbiot you've all described what george monbiot frames as as public luxury essentially whereas you can think of if you're particularly rich you might uh, you might wind up with you know, a lovely pool and a tennis court, yeah. and a home theatre, and all these things inside your mansion. But most of us can't afford all of that stuff. And and this way, we're actually pooling our resources so that we can provide these things, really good services and, and great things. But we'll just use them in common because we've all paid for them. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah it. 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 it um, I think those sorts of um, public luxuries would, would more than offset, I suppose, what some people would see as a sacrifice in terms of their... Um, I mean, we live in quite individualistic societies, but, but having those sorts of public luxuries would, would, would more than offset, I think, what some people would see as a, as a loss of their, their individualistic kind of will to, to, um, to, to do their garden, you know, exactly as they please. Or, um, that said, quite a lot of these collaborative housing groups... Um, are formed on the basis that people do have some private space of their own where, you know, they have their own kitchen or they, you know, they, um, some of the developments um, do kind of build in a larger a larger model of privacy. I, um, I know with some of the older retire, re- retiree kind of co-housing groups, um, people have got, you know, quite individual needs. So they might, um, as we, as you were talking about earlier with the tiny houses, you know, you didn't, you would, that particular community would, would look at the needs of those individuals or individuals who had a, a disability, and, and you know certain um, certain individuals would, can have can have um, individual modifications, and, and that that can be accommodated as well. Mm. Is there a current co-housing uh, community in Canberra? Like I've heard people throw the name Urambi Village around. Is that a true co-housing community? And um, if we don't have one, how soon can we hope to get one? <laughs> uh, yeah, you're around these, there's a few different um, clusters of houses that have been designed with the intention for people to kind of share things. Um, so Urambi Village um, was designed that way. I, I think it might be coming from the 70s uh, or 80s. It's in Canberra. Waibalina Grove in Cook was designed with an intention to have a lot of kind of interaction between the community. Um, over time, those communities have become... Uh, have looked less like co-housing, um, probably because the the design of those of those developments 
was, you know, still still not set up to kind of, I guess, true co-housing standards. Um, so there was more individuality built into those uh, sort of developments. Um, I guess another example might be the Pines in Lynham is, is kind of, um, there's a bit of a vibe there. People try to sort of um, share certain um, certain things. Um, but in terms of what's happening in Canberra, as Jules mentioned, it's pretty exciting that um, uh, in just... Just about eight weeks ago, the ACT government sought comments on um, a draft variation to the planning um, laws. It was called housing choices, boarding houses and co-housing. And they were looking at whether um, co-housing or, you know, sort of alternative housing types could be allowed in um, RZ1, which is uh, 80% of Canberra's urban space. Um, uh, but overall, they were very interested in, in um, I guess, Changing Canberra zoning laws, which have been traditionally pretty prohibitive for for things like co-housing or, or boarding houses. Um, so if that yeah, if that passes, that would maybe that could see an absolute um, you know burgeoning of of alternative housing in Canberra. At the moment, there's also a demonstration housing team within within the ACT government who have put out um, if you like. Um, uh, They've got a sort of project in place where they are sort of uh, helping people to um, to come up with kind of novel or new housing types um, under their program, and they sort of provide support for that. Um, and but like I guess like Jill said earlier, these things are always very low, and yeah, it's, it's just uh, it's, it's incredibly time consuming to get change within um, within planning laws. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yes. I think Scotty and I are just going to tag team here, so we hear different voices coming in, <laughs> and that's that's sort of what we figured out. And we've both got lots of great questions we want to ask. That's so. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I was just going to tag back to Mark. I mean, I know that Sun Villages has been going for quite a while. Um, what's the sort of what's the story that you've had? You would have had plenty of hurdles in your in your journey uh, with the regulations and such. Yeah, that's right, Scotty. It still uh, it still hasn't been built. Um, the couple who uh, had the vision about this came from a permaculture background and experienced living in a, a more rural setting um, using permaculture principles. <clears throat> so they owned a block of land in uh, Queanbeyan, which had seven lots on it. So, the, so six lots have been developed in normal uh, commercial development and that's all operating quite well. And the, the, the last lot, the seventh lot, is, is to realise their vision for um, some villages. And we've had to uh, talk, like, because even the leasing arrangements and the, and the ownership arrangements, all of these things are innovative and different from normal um, practice. So we've been going through, and, and it's all done by uh, voluntary effort. So in a way, it's quite slow, uh, what we're learning. But we're trying to make this a reproducible model so that other people around New South Wales and Australia can um, uh, use the intellectual property that we're developing to set up their own structure. And as Fiona said, one of the, the key things, even those um, housing developments in Canberra that have been developed to be suitable for co-housing uh, have drifted away from that because essentially we've created a lifestyle where we're all flat out going to work. We, we leave home early. We outsource the education, the care uh, of our children to other people and, you know, our parents and our older people are outsourced all of that. 
So in a way, the home has um, is is often empty during the day, and in uh, communities, you know, that have moved, you know, say if you go to a lot of uh, say say in Greece or somewhere like that, it's interesting that the COVID virus uh, hasn't decimated the older people in Greece as much as it has in other communities because the culture in in places like that is is real care for their old people, and so. Um, when we have this intergenerational uh, economy of care, which isn't a, a, a commercial transaction, but it's part of the way we want to live together, you know, childcare and elder care and uh, doing food together all become part of what uh, a home's about. And, it's, you know, with a bit of luck, the, the outcome out of, out of this virus could be we could go back to a more calm and balanced lifestyle that lends itself to be a lot more connected to our homes and to our neighbours and the people around us. And so the model of co-housing would fit very well into that sort of lifestyle. But as soon as we're sort of um, forced to leave our home and go away to work and come back late and buy our food as pre-packaged and all of that sort of stuff, we end up uh, not optimising the quality of uh, interactions and ways of living together uh, in uh, that you might get in families linking up with each other and uh, even single parents and kids sharing their childcare and uh, needs with each other. So um, we're still hoping that uh, some villages can, you know, we're, we're going through the idea of being um, a cooperative so uh, that both investors and resident investors uh, have their needs met in terms of uh, funding and living in a in a, uh, a collective enterprise. And as Fiona also said, you know, unless you've got that common vision, and it doesn't have to be a really stringent vision, like re- very intentional communities have a very disciplined vision about how they want to be together. Uh, the idea here is, is really village life in the city. So there's a lot of freedom of being in a village but there's also a sense of connection when you need it with each other. We're trying to sort of create that sort of environment. Mm. And, and Mark, how would you ensure that, um, say, like a development like Sun Villages is going to be sympathetic with the existing neighbourhood or the existing um, community? Because a lot of resistance often comes from ignorance and people thinking, oh, I don't want some sort of commune on my doorstep, not in my backyard, you know, that sort of mm. approach. Well, so your hippies moving into <laughs> the neighbourhood. <laughs> Anti-gentrification. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I haven't heard that complaint yet, because, um, but you, you could be right. When, when we don't know about something happening next door, you know, we tend to fill that um, uncertainty with a bit of fear. You know, like I think that's one of the reasons why any development that happens in Canberra is really sort of goes through wet cement to get, you know, like it's a really onerous process on everybody because most of us don't want to see things change. And so it is difficult to create designs that are uh, actually good for the neighbours and good for the individuals there and and for the whole society. So we can do design like that, but it's often our processes of how we do it. If it's transparent and open and the values behind it are clear and people have a say in it and we're all engaged in it, like one of the ideas behind some villages is the community assets that are developed there uh, and the social infrastructure is such a strong part of it that the the neighbours want to join in with it. They'd be Mm. part of the community. So um, it's hard to tell people that until they can experience it. But the the vision and the philosophy is to be really inclusive of the the neighbours and their needs and they'd be 
like a part of it, even though they're not uh, included in the in the block that's being designed. Yeah, they're included in your your ex- extended community. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. So, so speaking about um, you know helping the neighbours or the local community appreciate that, uh, I just wanted to say that uh, unfortunately Fiona's going to have to leave us at uh, ten this morning. So I just wanted to give her an opportunity uh, to maybe share more, a few more things about co-housing. And I and I do know from my experience of exploring co-housing in Canada that the co-housing developments I visited actually used to hold open days where you could come and tour and have a look around and meet the residents and get a sense of what life would be like. And it was also a way for them to vet you to see if you would be a good fit for the community or that sort of lifestyle because people often uh, you know have misunderstandings about what co-housing is going to be like so um, they had all this opportunity for people to come and experience the village or the, the development and get a feel for it and for the residents to get a feel for potential incoming new residents is that uh, something that you're um, experienced with Fiona that you've been offering that uh-huh. that's yeah an option? I mean that- yeah. <laughs> that, that would be sort of um, a dream and I think that would kind of be maybe at kind of your, your stage five of the of the process. Like thankfully now there are some guidebooks that have been written about building co-housing communities because it's notoriously difficult for any, any group to get, um, you know, housing let off the ground for, for so many reasons. Um, but um, I've been really, really heartened by this sort of guidebook that's been put out recently by a group in um, in the UK who have got a really, really fantastic uh, affordable co-housing. I think it's the world's first sort of specifically affordable co-housing um, development in Leeds in the UK. And they are really, uh, they've got a whole team, a whole kind of... Um, what they would call it, an outreach team, and they have uh, open days every month and they um, have um, garden tours, they have permaculture courses. So they, they're they a very established community. I guess the, the key thing to kind of think about with, with building communities is time frames. So they had a eight-year planning process of, of, you know, getting together to flesh out the community, to agree on what their ethics and principles were going to be, to find suitable builders to work with, and then to put together the financing. So it's, um, they, they, their whole project kind of came together after around 10, 10 years, but that's, that's a pretty normal time frame for co-housing to, to come together. So in the ACT, we're still, you know, very, very fledgling. Um, we've had a few kind of attempts to, to look at buying land, but it's, you know, uh, uh, when we talk, when you talk about the barriers, um, I wish I could kind of uh, stay on a bit longer for the conversation to talk about some of the barriers. Uh, but yeah, once once you've got um, you know land, essentially, yeah, having open days um, that could easily be organised through through things like um, you know online online bookings type type um, platforms. Yeah, that's that's a great way to to show people what what you've got to offer. Yeah, it really. I think it really helps people get a sense of the the, the feeling of living in a co-housing community that uh, maybe they've not experienced that before. Because we have so much land, as you said, in Australia, and I think we're used to having a lot of space and um, individual, you know, standalone housing developments for families with lots of space. And in Europe and, and other more developed um, cities with you know higher density populations, they're used yeah, to having I to live the... on top of each other. So I, I don't know. Maybe that was an easier transition to look at that model yeah i could give a shout out if people wanted to go to open days um there's a community north of sydney which is quite quite an uh, incredible group called narara they've purchased um 
CSIRO farmland and converted it into three hamlets and they do open days every month. Um, there's, um, of course, Christy Walk in Adelaide, in the centre of Adelaide, which is a kind of prize-winning um, sort of co-housing-like development and they do open days fairly frequently. There's a few co-housing projects in Tasmania that do regular open days and, of course, um, Basically, I think every established group in Australia, um, there's a great one in Perth in, um, called Pinakari. They do open, they do dinners actually. Every fourth Sunday of the month, they just have a dinner um, within the community and they have a Facebook page and just say, come, come by, bring a dish and come and have a dinner with us in our backyard. We'll do a pizza and in the pizza oven. Um, so I think every established community, I think that's normal, but you want, you want, you want engagement with the wider community. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. And um, if somebody is thinking, okay, do I have to buy into co-housing or can I rent? Is there a portion of the um, the homes in the co-housing development that would be set aside for people that are only in, only in a position to rent and perhaps not buy in right now? Yeah, there's a real there's a um, there's a there's an appetite for renting, of course, um, for obvious reasons, and it just really does depend on the makeup of the group. Some. Some groups uh, would say, you know, we're an intentional community and so we see a real benefit in asking people to commit to um, to buying into our community and that would be easier if, if, it, was, if it was cheaper land then you, I suppose you can kind of ask for that commitment from people um, and other groups are quite happy to have a portion of their community to be renters. Um, there are pros and cons to, you know, to, have, to both but excuse me, the advantage of having a kind of core group of, of um, long-term residents um, in any community is, yeah, you just have that sort of continuity and, and yeah, stability in, mm. in how things are run. Yeah, I think Bill Mollison used to point out that uh, it's very much worthwhile having people who've got no money there because they're the people who know how to do everything. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's certainly from the perspective of having a good um, social mix, it would it would make sense to have a, a mixture of people options offered and I know um, I should have given a shout out to a local community called um, Bega Eco Village Community who just are on the edge of the town of Bega. Um, they have some long-term renting options there um, and the people who've been um, offered those long-term renting options have been there for a really long time and they're very much part of the community. Um, so, it, you know, it can work really well. Pina Curry, the one I mentioned in Perth that has the, the dinners, they also have a portion of their land that's dedicated for um, for uh, social housing or long term long term renters actually and, and those and those residents are also very much part of the community so you know yeah I shouldn't imply that by renting doesn't mean you're not committed um, it, it definitely can mean that it, it's more I think to do with um, sounding out everyone's intentions about what, what it is they're looking for bef- you know before well and truly before they they commit. Hmm. Just, I think that is the thing about intentional community you you want to come together as a community and you want the community to work. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I guess you're describing a commitment to the community, but not necessarily a commitment to the ownership of it. Yeah, and that's a lot yeah, of the, a lot of the housing co-ops in Canberra are on that model, where the government actually owns the stock and people are renting from it, but they they hold the community and the governance. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and um, yes. 
Yeah, and from what I saw in Canada with uh, the co-housing, there was a really broad demographic of residents. There was some, some quite wealthy people who owned um, their homes outright and had a lot of disposable income and um, could have, if they'd chosen, you know, lived in a very expensive detached house somewhere else, but they wanted to be part of a community. There was also uh, people on fixed incomes. There was seniors on pensions. There was um, young single parents, a uh, really big demographic, and all of them coming together to support each other. So that integration of, of people from different walks of life and different financial tiers really actually was a benefit to the community. Yeah, sorry to hark back to this um, lilac model that I've talked about from the UK, but for me, they really are the world's sort of leading um, pioneers of what affordable, equitable housing looks like. And they've put in so much work. They, I mean, a lot of them actually came out of a university and they got funding to actually, you know, pay someone to, to do this work. But they've, they've designed a computer program which can very easily keep track of each um, resident's contributions and some people will be contributing very very little and some you know some people can contribute a lot but the point is that the people who are contributing very very little can over time you know as long as everybody's contributing enough to keep the thing kind of running and moving forward um, you you and everyone sort of knows and trusts each other and and that this this project is is viable. You you can have people on almost you know no income um, living in living in affordable kind of shared community. Yep. Yeah. And how we measure contribution, of course, varies so that contribution doesn't have to be financial. It doesn't have to be monetary or um, asset yes. based. It can yeah, certainly be yeah. you know the contribution to community um, from an intrinsic level was probably Absolutely. the most important yeah. part. So this software they've designed incorporates um, people can kind of. Um, you know, the software basically acknowledges the hours that people can put into various, you know, needed sort of work around around the community, whether it's, you know, upkeeping of gardens or housing or, you know, there's always so many things that need to be done. And, um, yeah, this software, I mean, they're not, I'm, I'm not spruiking the software because I'm, you know, trying to um, look at a commission and I don't think they're looking to make money. It's just an example of how technology can actually help communities function really well where people have got very different contributions mm. to offer. It's wonderful. Mm. So I know you have to leave us, Fiona. Is there anything else that you wanted to add um, before we let you go to your <laughs> pending appointment? Uh, um, I just uh, a last kind of comment about the, the nature of the, the pandemic and this kind of new world we're in, entering into. Um, it's got to be very interesting for me to kind of see what that does to um, the appetite for for co-housing in, say, Canberra. On the one hand, I think we're we're sort of appreciating the um, the ability uh, the ability of so many of us in Australia to kind of spread out and 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 you know have um, you know just the fact that it's such a sort of low density living environment for a lot of people has kind of allowed us to be um, to kind of deal with the pandemic quite well. And so I wonder if people will be kind of put off of. Um, you know, small small living and living close. I hope not. I hope not. I think on the other hand, the other thing that's come out of the pandemic has been this, um, you know, very clear, very clear, clear um, message about, you know, pulling together, sharing, getting along with each other better, learning to share better. So I, I hope that's the sort of trend that, that we mm -hmm. go down. But from my perspective, I know that my, the, the sort of work I've been trying to do in Canberra with co-housing, you know, we've just kind of, we're just sitting and waiting and seeing seeing what's going to happen. It's very, it's a very difficult kind of time to um, to kind of navigate through and see what, what the future might look like. Mm. And if people want to find out more about um, your enterprise and about co-housing, where should they go? 
Um, well, if you just want to know what co-housing is, if you you know Google co-housing, the the Wikipedia entry is actually very informative and interesting. But in terms of Canberra um, locally, um, Facebook is our main form of of connecting with people. Um, cause just an easy easy web page to upkeep. Um, so it's just co-housing Canberra. And if you want to look at the Australian scene, Co-Housing Australia is a really great uh, Facebook page which talks about all the different developments in, in Australia. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us, Fiona. And I know things were tight for you to get you in here this morning. So um, look forward to having you back. And hopefully if your project gets up and running, we can do a follow-up. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thanks, Fiona. Thank so, you. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, so, getting... Scotty, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got it. Uh, Jules, um, your your model is, is so we've sort of explained tiny houses. Um, now you're looking at putting a whole a whole gang of tiny houses together in your project, and it's sort of based on a caravan park model. How how does a caravan park sort of work? Well, maybe I should say that the ideal would be based on a caravan park model, um, or possibly the ideal because that allows for you know, a large area of potentially rural land to be shared by a cohesive group of people. Unfortunately, under New South Wales planning regulations, developing a caravan park is quite expensive. So you know, the best way is to find a caravan park, that you can, an existing one that you can buy and then turn into a, a village, a, a community. Um, the, the model that I'd like to create would have you know, 30 to 40 dwellings um, and would be very much a sustainably managed, um, yeah, ecologically, so there's farmland, there's, you know, along permaculture lines would be ideal, um, as well as you know, a, a big focus on the social s- sustainability of the, um, the residents and financial sustainability of the park as a whole. So it actually, the model that I'm looking at is both a residential and a tourist model because um, A, people do like to stay in tiny houses and that brings um, them the opportunity to see a community, to, to even you know, engage with a community, uh, to, to bring potentially you know, their own um, giftings and what they have to offer to the community um, in a sh- in a short-term um, perspective. But it, it then provides more financial income to the community, which makes it more of a viable um, prospect. If in trying to create an affordable community, it's really difficult. It's really, you know, both land costs and development costs are so high um, in... in the eastern part of Australia, certainly. And that that's where people want to live. They want to live within proximity of cities and you know, major centres. Sure, I could purchase land out near Dubbo and create a caravan park out there. Actually, the developing the caravan park itself, it'd still be a lot of money, minimum a million. Um, but to, to create, um, you know, to buy the land there is much cheaper around our part of the world it's yeah it's difficult um (laughs) so i'm i'm really actually looking at a smaller model at the moment it's not a currently legal model 
it's pretty close to fitting in with existing regulations, but the, the ownership model is stretching it a bit. So um, I, I'm looking at collaborating with um, community organisations, churches who have land that's underutilised and developing small communities, six to 12 dwellings as opposed to 30 or 40. And those would be a rental model because the land would remain the property of the church or the community organisation. But it would be um, yeah, something that could actually be developed more quickly and less onerously provided councils are amenable. And you know, I feel in, you know, in response to the COVID crisis, tiny houses in a community are a really appropriate way to, to be able to live, but to be able to be separate from one another. So I know that a lot of share housing um, groups have had real struggles with, with each other and with how to handle um, you know, the, the social distancing and the hygiene aspects of housing when everybody goes to different workplaces and um, you know, has different contacts during the day and then comes back to share a house. And it's, it's the same in a family, but somehow families you know, have a, a cohesiveness so you're talking generally. about like a share house with this multiple renters yes, in one Yes, multiple renters one in one home. Yeah. So like a boarding house or, a, or just a share house. So many people these days, even my age, are living in share houses. And the, I've, I've read several articles about, you know, the various ways that um, share, housing ha share housing groups have handled their, their response to COVID and some are, you know, incredibly rigorous and wash every item of, you know, every item that comes in from the shops, everything has to be sterilised. Others, not so. And, you know, some get quite unhappy with each other because different members have very different ways of dealing with this. I've even heard of a couple of people who've swapped houses because the community of the other house was more compatible with how they were and they were the odd one out. Right. <laughs> they knew each other and just swapped houses. <laughs> I, look, I can understand that. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, this kind of um, novel crisis brings up very different things in each of us, brings up our own personal ways of dealing with things that can vary so much. And so, I, you know, I think that small communities within towns and villages that are close to major centres that are, you know, quite accessible and affordable will, you know, will provide a long-term solution. Um, I just need to get some amenable councils on board. And there are, you know, there are councils that are prepared to look at new ways of doing things. They're, they're really aware that what, what we've been doing isn't working. There's still a housing crisis and it's growing. It's not getting smaller. And as you said recently with COVID, that's really brought to light what isn't working oh, in absolutely. our residential situation. But we, we don't want to forget that, I know we're all focused on COVID and the plague right now, but there was another huge, huge crisis not that long ago, and that was the bushfires. Yes. And um, I was talking to you in the lift this morning and we were thinking that perhaps that community could really benefit from some of these housing models in their uh, rebuilding and, and their relief, a community relief post bushfire reconstruction and rebuild. Yes. You know, I was, I was thinking actually after I spoke with you, um, something that happened in 2015 that many of us were very unimpressed with was 
um, the repeal of CEP 15, which is a, uh, an environmental planning policy that allowed rural multi-occupancy um, housing. So it, it, every council in Australia has repealed that CEP bar um, Lismore, I believe. So it's still possible in the Lismore Shire to create um, rural multi multi-dwelling um, housing developments. To be like a, a land that's zoned for rural or farming Yeah, use. land that's zoned for rural but allows multi-occupancy yeah. yeah. in the one, uh, sort of under the one allotment. Um, it's no longer permissible in the rest of New South Wales. And I think this is a time to bring it back. I think you know, this would be an, a really appropriate um, avenue for providing housing down in um, the southern coast Oh, the south coast. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people that lo own land down there, um, even land in villages that that would be suitable for tiny house communities. It's just at the moment the only legal model is a caravan park, and that is an onerous approach. Mm -hmm. And perhaps too, you know, we've got people on councils and shires that have also lost property in the fires that are also personally impacted that may be more open and willing uh, yes. now they've experienced a tragedy on a personal level to to really um, maybe take some action and, and yes, be open you're to right. changing things up there. Yeah, and they are probably the people we should be talking to. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I know Mark's got uh, got a lot of contacts down the coast and I believe you, uh, you might have lost a, a place down there too, did you, Mark? Mm -hmm. Actually, that's right, Scotty. Um, when I was in my early 30s and having my children, I got involved in a project with uh, three other families where we designed and built our own house. And that, that I mean, we didn't call it co-housing, but that, that's essentially uh, what it was. We, were, we had a vision about um, doing some woodwork and building together. We had our kids there. It took us eight years to build it together. And we're, we're still, uh, even though it's burnt down, we're still looking at um, how we could proceed as a group uh, if we we're going to do a second generation that would be bushfire proof with the insurance money that we've got. So we're still going through that process. But even that, you, you, when you're working as a group of people, there's a lot of emotions, you know, there's lots of joy of doing things collaboratively together. And there's also uh, some tears. You know, because you get into conflict with each other. I can remember having a conflict about what sort of nails to choose to put the, <laughs> the wallboards on because we were near the sea. We wanted nails that would last a long time and not rust. So it's like uh, living in any group house. You, you, and I think one of the things that I've learned is we need to learn to be able to have healthy conflict with each other. Yeah. So it, it's not to assume that we're all going to get on nicely with each other. Uh, but that we can be fully authentic ourselves um, and share what our needs are and be prepared to hear what other people's needs are and come up with a solution that might be better than what both of you would have come up if you fought each other over it. And, and most of us, uh, we don't learn those skills at school. We don't often learn them in our families. But, gee, if you can learn to collaborate with other people and, and deal with conflict in a healthy way, uh, they are fantastic life skills to have. So, um, you know, co-housing is an opportunity to step into a social environment to practice that. You can still retreat to your own space. But, uh, you know, we, we get a lot of good mental health when we learn to get on with other people. And even uh, when we differ with them, 
you know, so that's yeah. part of the practice. So um, you, you've, have you been down to the coast much? I mean, is there still a lot of people without housing down there? Yeah, I think there is, Scotty. I, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm well informed about it, but I, I think given that COVID's happened straight after all the bushfires, there'd be a lot of people still living in tents and caravans and feeling a bit uh, left out. Um, well, so, in the uh, cold now, yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, you know, these are, as Fiona was saying and Jules, you know, these are good times for looking at ways, because, you know, it's financial uh, stress and also uh, how we collaborate with each other. So, you know, how we um, make decisions wisely together. Um, you know, there'd be a lot of people who've, who built their houses out in the bush down the coast who've had the fire clean them out, you know, they would have had all their lifetime of effort put into their garden and their um, their buildings and, and everything like that. So I think there's there's going to be a lot of um, work to happen to heal all of that and, and where we move to in the future. Mm. And that's all, all been sort of washed away a bit by the COVID yeah. happening at the moment. And the, the reason we wanted to bring that up is because next week we're actually going to have a collection of people from the bushfire-affected region of the South Coast on the show to talk about um, what they're experiencing and how things have been for them. So it's really sort of talking to people who are on the ground, experiencing it moment to moment and uh, helping them get their voice out there and talk about what's lacking and what they still need. And I'd actually um, encourage them to listen to the show today to maybe get some ideas from you guys about possibilities on, on rebuilds and um, any resources or ideas that could be used to help them get back on their feet. So, you know, because you personally, Mark, experienced loss in the fire and saw the devastation firsthand down there, I'm sure that you've got... Um, a lot of ideas buzzing in your head about things that um, need to change and could be changed. And uh, we actually had you on in February to talk about um, in the aftermath of the fires. You joined us and talked about a project you had going um, with the community, community learning in Maruya to help the community come together and solve problems as a community and talk to each other. Yes, that's right. We haven't revisited that, but uh, th those issues would still be alive uh uh, in Maruya and down the south coast, that's for sure. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, it was because we're getting close towards the end here. I want to give everybody a chance to um, to share any bits that we've missed and things that they want to um, let our listeners know about. Jules, is there anything else that you would like to um, share about tiny houses that you think people are just dying to know? I feel like I covered everything I wanted to say. Um, yeah, my memory isn't brilliant, but I think I did. And if, if anybody wants to get in touch with me, um, certainly my website is livesimply.com.au mm -hmm. and there's a contact page on there. So that's, that's usually the best way. That's how most people get in touch with me. Mm -hmm. And for people that are thinking of exploring building a tiny house, um, I know there's a couple of options available where you can actually go and stay in a tiny house. It's run like an Airbnb. That's right. um, try it out. See if, you know, if you're a six foot four guy, maybe banging your head every time you, you know, come out of the bathroom might not be for you. Or you might think about, I've got to incorporate those things into the design of my new tiny house. So I think there's um, a couple places on the coast that managed to escape the fires. One's at Tilba, I think it's called the Til Tilba Lake Camp. There. They have be. a I, couple of tiny houses. Familiar. I do know there's an organisation like an Airbnb called yeah. Tiny Stays. They have tiny okay. houses all Good. over 
the place. Mm. And yeah, so they're, they mm. are a great way to so go. So try before you build? Yeah, try yeah. before you build, try yeah. before you buy. And yeah. uh, there's probably, I um, imagine there's probably quite a good resource for tiny house builders if people want to reach out and start talking about there that are both a lot. on trailers <laughs> and on footings. Yes, there's there's good websites. There's um, There are a lot of tiny house builders. Mm. The thing to be aware of is that the tiny house builder is a registered builder, that mm. they actually know what they're doing because there's not a requirement to be a builder in order to build something mm. on a trailer. Mm. And there are some less than adequate structures being built. Mm. And you know, I, I'm not into over-regulation, but there does need to be regulation for safety mm. in mm. these things. And so, yeah, just make sure that the builder you're looking at does really know what they're doing and has the, the ticket behind them. Mm-hmm. It's worth uh, worth mentioning that a clean energy certified um, off-grid person, it's worth using them for your off-grid thing or at least consulting them. Cause, oh, yes. Yeah, <laughs> there are things that can go wrong with batteries and stuff. So. Yeah. so if you're looking sure at going are. off-grid with Thanks, your Scotty, tiny, for the yeah, help yeah. you've yeah. given. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's fantastic. And also um, with the tinies, what sort of price range are we talking about to do a build? Because people are probably thinking, okay, we're talking about affordable housing here. So um, what's what's affordable when we're talking about tinies? Well, people are building them themselves um, for, you know, in the vicinity of sort of starting around 35000 That would be a, an absolute bottom mm. level um, build. So that would the be the trailer itself costs about yeah. twelve, isn't it? Wasn't well, it depends. If you're yeah. doing a small, like a, a six foot trailer, mm. could be six thousand if you mm. get the right um, mm. trailer builder, and they need to be built to the right standard. Mm. Um, but yes, six to twelve thousand for a trailer. The twelves are usually quite a bit bigger. Uh, a, a fully built tiny, um, say seven point two meters long, which seems to be a fairly mm. standard size will usually set someone back in the vicinity of 100,000. There are not many that are available for less than that. I did start a business building them cheaper, but Mm. on realising that the main problem was that there was nowhere to live in them legally Mm. or very, very few places, um, I changed my focus to being creation of of communities and and lobbying Mm. governments and councils to to change regulations to make it easier for people to live in tiny houses. Mm. And there's also, I think, probably a market for people that have tried tiny living and it's not for them or it's they've outgrown it, so there's probably some fabulous second-hand tiny homes There available. absolutely yeah. are. There are. Um, again, still check the provenance of that tiny house. Some are coming in from China and I really have no idea of the, you know, whether they meet standards, whether they're uh, you know, mm-hmm. of adequate construction. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> It's really hard to know. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. And there's a couple of builders I'm aware of too that are offering plans now. So you decide um, if you want to do it on a trailer or on footings and they're experienced tiny house builders. So they know that some people want to do it themselves but need a little bit of help. Yes. So that you can actually, you know, you can buy the trailer to your specifications or the, you know, the plans to build on footings. Yes. So you don't have to start from scratch. That's available as well. Oh, absolutely. And even some yeah. builders are building to just a lock-up stage so mm. that you can then you fit can do it the out yourself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think there's a couple in Queensland I just saw 
on a tiny house show. It's called Tiny House Nation. And they are an older couple who are saying that the demographic is changing for people who want to live in tiny houses. It's no longer sort of young back-to-roots folks as much. It's a, a lot of older and semi-retired or retired folks who are interested. And they... Um, had a, a home built to lock up and the guy was actually an ex-cabinet maker and he decided oh, to nice do job. all the finishings and this is an amazing house. Yes. They're calling it the Hamptons House. If right. you want to look it up. Oh, actually, I've Tiny seen Tiny House one. Nations, the Hamptons House. Yes. This, this thing is like yeah. the, the Rolls Royce of tiny houses if you ever yes. want to <laughs> check it right. out. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Now, interestingly, mm-hmm. something you just brought up, um, the demographics of people wanting mm-hmm. to live in tiny houses. Mm-hmm. I've had a survey running for mm-hmm. the last two years and which I just took last night, by the way. Oh, did you? Okay. <laughs> it's yeah. It, this sorry. Some very interesting results have come from that. About just over four hundred people have completed that so mm. far, and of those, very few are actually under twenty-five or over sixty-five, and the the spread between twenty-five and sixty-four is nearly twenty-five, 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 twenty-five. In sort of it. There's, yeah, it's not any particular age group mm. within the 25 to 65 demographic. Mm. There's just a fairly even spread of people that are keen on tiny houses. Mm. Um, I think possibly another interesting thing to note mm. is that 70% of people who are interested in tiny houses have an income of less than 70000 a year, mm. so a household income of less than 70000 mm. So it's, you know, it's primarily people on the lower end of the income scale, but there is still... Yeah, I think a significant number, 30%, who have, you know, mm-hmm. quite significant incomes, mm-hmm. even double incomes, but who just want to live. It's a lifestyle choice. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. an absolute lifestyle choice. Yeah. So fantastic. So you mentioned um, people want to go to your website or your Facebook page. I don't have a Facebook page. I just have a website okay. at the moment. Yes, social so they should media all go there and, and take the survey friends, immediately. <laughs> Sorry? They should all go there and take the survey immediately. Um, if they wish, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, if it's if tiny houses and community are what they're interested in, then yeah, that would be great. Okay, well, that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Jules. It's been really informative having you share about that. And I'd love to give Mark a few minutes to um, share whatever else we've left out about Sun Villages and any projects that you've got going there. Thank you. Thanks, Zena. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, um, Zena. I don't think we've left anything out, really, but probably the key thing is, you know, is the money. Like, um, you know, more and more land and housing is just getting out of reach of people, and especially young people. You know, to be able to own your own home used to be just an assumption you'd make in Australia, and that's not the, the, the situation anymore because of the way we've allowed our economy to run to make housing... Uh, a speculative uh, venture. So we need to collaborate with each other around pooling our money. And then the other thing is design. Like, you can actually uh, have some fantastic uh, design that's very energy efficient and make your house really last for a lifetime of um, good functioning. And Canberra is actually a fantastic place with some excellent designers, and I'd like to mention Lighthouse uh, Design and Science as one... uh, you know, energy efficient, uh, you know, home designing. Um, and the the third area, I think, which is really the key is the social dynamics, which is really about how we, how we collectively work together. And most of us feel, you know, like, gee, it's too hard to, to do that. So I'll just, you know, it's hard enough to just live with my partner and, and my kids or whatever. But, uh, you know, there is a lot of value in being able to work in a group of people and uh, get the, the benefits out of that. 
So there's lots of uh, group processes and uh, managing the common type of skill that, um, you know, that they will start to return to um, the way we operate in the world when we can uh, get on well with each other and have, have healthy, respectful conflicts with each other. <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. called emotional yeah. intelligence, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Now, how do people get in touch with Sun Villages? Well, look, there's a Facebook page, uh, Scotty. Uh, we, we have got a website, which is a bit, you know, out of date because we're all volunteers and, and we're still trying to get our governance structure up. We've got, we're, we're, the best way is, yeah, just go to the Facebook page uh, or the website and um, uh, make contact us with it that way and you can get some more information. Okay, brilliant. Well, I'm hoping that in the not-too-distant future we'll be able to have all of you back on telling us about how the projects have moved forward or if there's any um, things that come up for you as a result of like post-COVID or post-bushfire um, recovery, if there's any projects that you get going in relation to those um, issues, we would love to have you back to talk about them. Yeah, thanks, Anna. Okay. Any last questions, Scotty? Oh, no, I think, I think we've covered it all covered pretty everyone? well. Covered everyone? Okay. Yeah. Well, I just wanted to say a huge thank you. We've, we've already said goodbye to Fiona, but that was uh, Fiona Game from Co-House in Canberra who was with us earlier, and to Mark Spain from Sun Villages Project in Queenbian, and Julie Esdale from Live Simply Tiny House Communities. Thank you, everybody. It's been a wonderful conversation, and we're really looking forward to seeing how things go forward from here. You have been listening to an episode of A Line in the Sound, the podcast made by Co-ops, Commons and Communities Canberra, Co-Canberra for short, the New Economy Network of Australia, or NINA, and Radio Behind the Lines from Community Radio 2XX 98.3 FM in Canberra, Australia. Co-Canberra is working towards a cooperative commonwealth. Our work builds strong communities, extensive commons, and a network of climate cooperatives. The New Economy Network of Australia is a network of individuals and organisations working to transform Australia's economic system so that achieving ecological health and social justice are the foundational principles and the primary objectives of the economic system. Behind the Lines has been running for well over 30 years on Canberra's oldest community radio station, 2XX. We do extended interviews with anyone who's trying to make the world a better place. All three are volunteer-run, so if you like what you heard on this episode, join us and become the media. To join up with the New Economy Network of Australia, sign up at neweconomy.org.au. To help out with Behind the Lines, or to help our editing team finish off a mountain of good Australian New Economy info, which includes editing training, contact us at behindthelines98.3 at gmail.com and see 2XXFM.org.au where you can subscribe, donate and volunteer to Australia's only alternative voice, Community Radio. If you're not in Canberra, there's definitely one near you. To help out with CoCanberra, contact us at info at cocanberra.org.au That's C-O-C-A-N-B-E-R-R-A.org.au or come along to our monthly meetups, which we share with Nina Canberra Regional Hub, where we explore any and all aspects of the new economy. Find out what we're up to at cocanberra.org.au. And finally, if you want to help fund me, Scotty, to go full-time with this and lots of other related work, look up LiberaPay, L-I-B-E-R-A-P-A-Y, and search for Community Supported Scotty. From there, you can find out about all my other projects and donate to help create a new appropriate economy. Thanks.